in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come. That is the news that's so good. That's the gospel. The gospel is this. In Jesus Christ, God's kingdom has come. And the kingdom of God condemns and judges and delivers us from racism, from bigotry. Let me show you what I mean. For the last few weeks, we've been listening together for, Paul, for God's address in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This letter in the Bible, it's written by the apostle Paul. And before Paul was called Paul, what was he called? Saul. Some of you have read this book. Saul. Now, he was a character. He was zealous. He was committed to his nation and his race. He wanted to make Israel great again. That was his mantra. He was frustrated by compromises that untethered the fabric of Israel's national identity. He was frustrated by compromises with the, the imperialist state of Rome, and he especially hated with a, with a violent bigotry every race but the Jewish race. He was a nationalist. He was a Jewish supremist. He was xenophobic to the core. And then he met the king. He met Jesus and it changed everything, including his view of nation and race. And in this most remarkable turn of events, Jesus sent Saul, who was now called Paul, to be a witness to other nations, to other races. To preach the gospel. What's the gospel? The news that God's kingdom is here and through the life and teachings and miracles and death and resurrection and ascension of the king, everybody can come into the kingdom and experience the shalom, the life, the forgiveness, the goodness that, that the king that Paul used to think belonged to Israel, he generously opened his heart to all. Paul, who wanted more than anything else before he became a Christian, more than anything else, he wanted to preserve his culture and his heritage. He was now called to cross cultures with love. So when Paul reflects on the love of God in Ephesians 2, and he starts talking about predestination, it has nothing to do with the debates of predestination that crop up between Mennonites and Presbyterians. When Paul talks about predestination in Ephesians, here's my translation. Holy cow! God picked me 
to be a part of this moment when his kingdom burst out of Israel into the whole world. I can't believe he did that. That's Paul's view of predestination in Ephesians. It's holy cow. I get to be a part of this incredible moment. I didn't see it coming. I was an SS guard for the Pharisees. I was xenophobic to the core. I can't believe I actually love these people that don't look like me. God plucked him out of hatred and changed him to the core. Christianity, think about King Jesus himself. Christianity was founded by a lower class brown man from the Middle East named Jesus. And Jesus, the one who changed Paul's bigoted heart, Jesus himself was born into a racially tense World, But part of what got Jesus in so much trouble was that over and over in the Gospels, the reason Jesus is in arguments with the Jewish leaders is not, it is not because the Jewish leaders thought that God's law was a ladder of moral behavior. And if they just climbed it good enough and hard enough and high enough, they could reach at the top God's favor. That was not the view of the Jews. Jesus did not get in fights with with the Jewish people because they thought they were earning God's favor. The Jewish view of the law was that it was what made us different. And because it made us different, we looked down on everybody else. The Jewish view of the law during the time of Jesus was it was an ethnic badge of superiority. Jesus fought with the Jewish leaders not because they thought they were earning God's favor, but because they forgot that God's favor was God's gift that should produce in them generosity to the nations. They didn't like that. So Paul meets Jesus, and he's changed by him. And look what, listen to what Paul says Jesus does on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in King Jesus, you, and he's writing this letter to non-Jews. The, the term of derision was the non-circumcised. They don't look like us. They're not a part of our ethnic group. He, here is Paul, the former SS guard. Saying to a group of people who were not Jews, but now in King Jesus, you, you people that I just would rather kill in my former life, you have been brought near in the king's blood. This is Paul's holy cow, right? I can't believe it. Gentiles through the cross can have access to the, all the goodness and blessing of God, you who used to be a long way off. He is, and then Paul says about himself and about those he used to hate, our peace. Jesus is what makes peace between Paul and the people he used to hate. He is our peace, you see. He has made the two to be one. Gentile and Jew. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall. 
that turns us into enemies of each other. He has done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. And be very careful here. He's not saying that God's rules don't apply anymore. Clearly, because later, the passage I was supposed to preach on this Sunday starts out, imitate God in love like he does. And then in about four sentences, Paul says, sexual immorality is so wicked, those who live in it will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you can do one of two things with that. You can either say Paul was confused and he didn't know that he advocated tolerance on the one hand and exclusion on the other hand. Or you can sit in judgment over him and say he used tolerance for the stuff he wanted to be tolerant for and exclusion for the stuff that got on his nerves. And you can discount him as a hypocrite. Or you can say we all must sit in tolerance on some things and judgment on other things. And Paul was right on the things he said in tolerance on and right in the things he said in judgment on. Now, to be a Christian is to fundamentally commit yourself to Scripture as God's Word. To be converted to Christ is to be converted to Scripture. It's to approach Scripture not with reason as your judge over it, but with humility under it. So there are many of us in this room that anytime we read the Bible, our fundamental assumption is God is speaking and God is right. And if it's confusing to me, I need to deal with it. Here is Paul. Paul is saying not when he says he abolished the law. This is a very technical argument. He's saying that God abolished those aspects of the law that guarded the ethnic identity of the Jews. Now, this is a technical issue that maybe one day we'll get to go through and see how this comes up through Scripture. What I'm getting at is... Christianity was birthed in a world with hatred and racial division between Jews and Gentiles. And at the heart of what Jesus was doing was dealing with that issue. Not that issue alone, but definitely that issue also. Christ kills the hostility between the races. Christ is our peace. Now, who is that for you? Is it a father that you refuse to forgive? Who, is there someone in your life that you hate the way Paul hated Jews? Can you see that the cross kills that hostility? Now, how does this work? How does the cross, how does the kingdom of God not only condemn and judge bigotry and racism, how does it actually heal it? How does that work? Two ways in Ephesians chapter 2, the passage that Sam read to us. Two ways this actually happened to Paul, that he could come to love these people. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. That's where they're named, and then the whole rest of the chapter kind of works out of that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the community of God. Two things. Number one, how does the kingdom of God destroy 
and heal racism. Number one, in the kingdom of God, we receive a new identity. You were alienated. There was something core to your life that changed. Bruce Ashford, uh, a Baptist theologian in North Carolina, he's over the last year or so been studying the alt-right movement. And not long ago he wrote this, the alt-right shares a determination to prioritize racial identity as the ultimate source of identity and as such something that must be guarded and conserved at all costs. The common core of the alt-right is white identity. And sure enough, yesterday, Richard Spencer, one of the alt-right speakers in Charlottesville, he shouted his mantra. Here is his mantra. Race is real, race matters, and race is the foundation of identity. So for Spencer, the most important thing is being white. This is such a twisted way of looking at the world. What, whenever we elevate our race or anything else, our gender, our sexual orientation our political affiliation, our nationality, our victim nature. Whenever we elevate anything to be the core identity, we look at everything through that identity and it will twist and distort. And so yesterday, President Trump said, we are Americans first. And that is profoundly unwise of him. Placing country as your first identity for Christians is an absolute no-fly zone. Not that gender or race or your victim narrative or your country, not that these things don't matter. Not that you can't love these things. But they cannot be primary. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, God points us in another direction. And this is unique to Christianity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, There is one baptism. The church is the baptized body of Christ. One baptism, one church, one people. Baptism is our identity marker. And it is applied to male and female and white and black and rich and poor and liberal and conservative. Listen to a similar passage to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to a similar passage in Galatians. Galatians 3, 28. This is a letter Paul wrote to the Galatians. He says, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no male or female. You are all one in the Messiah, Jesus. Baptism tells us we are first Christians. Being a Christian is about living into this new identity that we already have and reordering everything in our life under that new identity. We are not Americans first 
or men first, or women first, or victims first. We are Christians first. And in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul, he uses this phrase over and over, in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he's using that phrase to drive home the point that is our fundamental identity. Who are you? I'm a Christian. That's my primary identity. Our primary identity, that is what we interpret our stories through. That is what we interpret our victimizations through. That is what we interpret our weaknesses and our strengths through. That is what we look at the world through. The problem with white supremacy, white nationalism, white identity is that it makes race primary. And if anything is primary but Christ, it is an idol. Everything has to have a center. This is the claim of Christianity. The claim of Christianity is that the God who created the world saved the world. And he alone belongs at the center. And if he's not at the center, if anything else gets at the center... It will twist and distort. Ralph Ellison wrote a book called The Invisible Man. He said that the search for identity is the quintessential American theme. Union with Christ, being in Christ, gives you a completely new self-understanding found outside of yourself in Christ. Christian faith is finding your identity in Christ. So Jesus Christ has ushered in God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, we see the end of racial bigotry. And the first way that happens is that Paul, who used to say Jew first, now says Christ first. And he looks at those he used to hate, and they are in Christ. And since they say Christ first, and he says Christ first, it destroys the wall between us. What about... Your enemy. See, where some of us need to go, I think, this morning is not only grief and intercession for Charlottesville, but confession and repentance over the way hatred works out in our own lives. There's more. Not only does God's kingdom end bigotry and hatred, By giving us a new identity, an identity that levels. But it also creates a new community. It gives us a new community. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Okay, now you're in Christ, you have a new identity, and you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ, in Christ, you who were once far off, have been brought near. Brought near to what? Two things. You have been brought near to God, and you and I, Jews, have been brought near to each other. You have been brought into the community of God. King Jesus doesn't just tear down the dividing wall. He brings you into a new community. The church is the home, the family of the baptized body, male and female, old and young, black and white, rich and poor. The church is not based on race or nationality or class or ethnicity. The church is based on the grace of God that comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, not race, is the foundation of the church. Over the past weeks, we've seen in Ephesians chapter 2, 
in Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul marvels at how the kingdom of God brings different races together in the church. That's what Paul keeps breaking out into these kind of moments where he says, I can't believe this. This is a mystery. This is overwhelming. This is so amazing. It's the ethnic healing. Paul is Richard Spencer meets Christ and then moves into the inner city of Charlottesville and opens his heart and home in love. I can't believe I'm a part of this. That's what Paul keeps saying. And what he tells us at the end of chapter 2, we saw this several weeks ago, is that by doing this in the church, the church is held up for the world as a beautiful display of God's beautiful wisdom. The church is the most multi-ethnic institution in the world, bar none, nobody's even close. The Christian church is the most interracial, multi-ethnic institution, entity this world has ever seen. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us because that is the case, we must be eager to guard that multi-ethnicity and work hard for it. Listen to something that Richard Spencer said, this alt-right guy that was speaking yesterday. Our dream is a new society, an ethnostate that would be a gathering point for all Europeans. And by that he means white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, white, a certain type of white people. Now, the Apostle Paul would tell us that such an aspiration, that's the way the old humanity works. The kingdom of God is a lot different. Yesterday in Charlottesville, we saw this play out. There were two humanities at work in Charlottesville yesterday. At Emancipation Park, we saw the old world that Christ defeated. Hatred, racial pride. Did you know there was another gathering in Charlottesville yesterday? Our good friend Blake Johnson, the pastor of the church that we helped plant in Crozet, Holy Cross. And our good friend Keith Brault, who was an associate here, a curate here, and is now there helping Blake. They gathered yesterday morning at the first African Baptist church in Charlottesville with a group of Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics and Anglicans white and black, and they prayed. They prayed for their city. That's the other humanity. That's the humanity Christ makes in his cross. So the good news is in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come. And this, this not only judges and condemns all bigotry, but when you step into his kingdom, you can draw down on the power to end hatred and unforgiveness and bigotry in your life. 
The gospel gives us a new identity in Christ, a primary identity, and it creates a new community, the church, God's new society. This is multi-ethnic. It is the many-colored wisdom of God. Now, how should we respond as Christians here in Harrisonburg to the evil that manifested itself in Charlottesville. Four things. But to open up these four things, I'll, I'm going to tell a story, and then I'll quickly name the four things, and we'll be done. First, a story. On the night of February the 18th, 1965, about 500 people organized by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference They left Zion United Methodist Church in Marion, Alabama and attempted a peaceful walk to the Perry County Jail about half a block away from their church. There was a young civil rights worker being held in that jail by the name of James Orange. The marchers planned to go to the jail, sing hymns, and return to the church. They were met on their way there near the post office by a line of Marion, Alabama police officers, sheriff deputies, and Alabama state troopers. Suddenly, coincidentally, every street light went out. And the police assaulted the marchers. They beat them and attacked them. And among those beaten were two United Press International photographers whose cameras were smashed. And NBC News correspondent Richard Valeriani, who was beaten so badly he was hospitalized. The marchers turned. They scattered. They ran back toward the church. And during this chaotic scene, one group of the protesters, 26-year-old Jimmy Lee Jackson, his mother... Viola Jackson and his 82-year-old grandfather, Cager Lee, they ran for their lives. They entered a cafe behind the church. The state troopers pursued them into the cafe and used their clubs to beat Jimmy Lee Jackson to the floor. When his mother attempted to protect him, they began to beat her. When he then tried to protect his mother, one of the state troopers threw him against the cigarette machine while the other one shot him. So close, he had powder burns on his abdomen in the two places where the bullet wounds entered. He stumbled and ran. They beat him as he ran. He later collapsed. Eight days later, Jimmy Lee Jackson, the only male wage earner of his household, which lived in extreme poverty, he died at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Selma, leaving behind a family with no source of income, a mountain of grief. Now, in response, James Bevel, the director of the Selma Voting Rights Movement, 
part of the SCLC, called for a march from Selma to Montgomery to confront Governor George Wallace directly about Jackson's death and ask him if he ordered the state troopers to turn off the lights and attack the murderers. So on Sunday, March the 7th, 1965, between, 250, uh, between 525 and 600 civil rights marchers headed southeast out of Selma on U.S. Highway 80. And when they crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they encountered a wall of state troopers and... County Posse. The mounted troopers charged the crowd on horseback. And the crowd was attacked with nightsticks and tear gas. Televised images of this went around the world. It quickly became known as, anybody know? Bloody Sunday. In the African American community. After the march, President Johnson did the right thing. He clearly condemned it. He didn't say it was complex. He clearly condemned it. He said, we must deplore the brutality with which the African-American community, used other words of Alabama, were treated. Now, at this point, Martin Luther King Jr. issued a clarion call to anyone in America who wanted to come to Selma and join in the cause. And people responded. By March 21st, 25,000 people had responded to the call to Montgomery to march. But one of the most interesting things for me, a pastor, uh, I was... Uh, I saw this play out if you watch the recent movie Selma. It's excellent. What's most interesting to me about the movie and about the history is who did not show up. You see, I'm the son of a Baptist pastor from rural Louisiana. And my grandfather was a Baptist pastor in rural Louisiana. And my uncle and my brother-in-law and my cousin. And you know who did not show up? Conservative Christians from the South. The evangelical Southern Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists did not show up. You know who showed up? The Jewish people, the Roman Catholics, and the mainline Christians. The liberal Christians showed up. The conservative Christians of the South were awash in racism. My grandfather preached against the KKK. They burned a cross in his yard. And I grew up saying the vilest words about black people that I learned from him. A good and godly and devout man, totally blind. Totally blind to the way racism was playing out at a structural level. Could see aspects of it. I was taught this by godly forebearers from their lips about Martin Luther King. We never knew why that agitator came here. They loved Jesus. They really did. It was real Christianity. They went to real Bible studies. They really took King Jesus seriously. And they were blind. This is our, we are a conservative evangelical church. This is our heritage. What is it about evangelical Christianity in America that is blind on the race issue? Now, I'm not saying every single person. But as a collective, it has utterly failed. How should we, 
conservative evangelical church respond to Charlottesville? First of all, we must pray. When you see evil, your first course of action should always be prayer. No amount of activism can replace going before the one who can heal the brokenness. And while we pray, we must confess. We must confess any unforgiveness in our own hearts. We must confess our own sins. Have you made a secondary identity primary? Repent. Grieve. And we must repent of our corporate complicity. We must mourn over the tension and the hatred and the division that has become so emboldened in our nation. Second of all, we must not be silent. Not ever about this stuff. The gospel that reconciles us to God through Jesus Christ, based on nothing we do, but grace alone reconciles us to one another and condemns and judges all forms of racial, ethnic, class boasting, racial bigotry, racist ideology, white supremacy, the white nationalism of the alt-right is evil. We must say it. We must say it over and over. We must declare it. It is political and it is economic and it is sociological. It is all of that stuff. And we just step out there and say it. We cannot do what the good Christians of the South did 50 years ago. They were wrong. It was sin to be silent. To watch evil occur and to say nothing about it is to do evil. Third, we must reach out to the minorities and the immigrants and the refugees and the undocumented citizens and all of those who in this moment are so profoundly vulnerable. Regardless of your politics. You're a Republican, work for solutions through the Republican framework. You're a Democrat, work for solutions through the Democrat framework. You're a Libertarian, through that framework. We need all of our political parties to rise up, to go into their past, to name the toxic sides of their past, to find the good parts of their past, and recontextualize them for a very difficult moment. Try to imagine what it's like right now. For non-white people, the gospel is for the oppressed. It is for the marginalized. If it is not for them, it is not for anyone. And while we're at it, the gospel is also for the oppressor. Right on the cross. Jesus prays, God forgive them. Love your enemies. Let's not feel self-righteous and hate righteousness and hate toward those who provoked violence yesterday. They are human too. They need the gospel too. And the gospel can transform them too. The gospel is the only thing that can free our hearts to love others. Number four, we must hope. 
must live in hope. We know where this thing is going. We know that every tear will be wiped away. We know that the kingdom of God is the ultimate reality. Long and work for the unity that God's kingdom offers. Celebrate King Jesus' defeat of the powers until he comes. And in just a few moments, we are going to come to this table. And we're going to partake of the victory feast of the Lamb. And by doing that, we are erecting a stake in the ground. A flag that says the kingdom of God is over all. This is where it's going. And so he will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies, those powers and authorities that are filling groups of people in this land to live out with hatred and violence. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.